When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week, we don't just have the pleasure of talking to an author that I love. We also have the pleasure of introducing you to the co-host of On Air. Lauren Sandler. Lauren has already actually been introduced to you. We included her in season one of Hot and Bothered as an interviewee, but now we've lured her into being a co-host of an entire season with us. What you're about to hear is an interview that I did with Lauren about her latest book, This Is All I Got. It is an incredible book that is now out in paperback about a young mother who's homeless fighting for her life and for her son's. I'm Vanessa Soltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. So I'm so excited to bring you all Lauren Sandler. For those of you who don't know her, it feels like a gift that I am giving you because Lauren has been a really important writer in my life for a long time. And in fact, I read Lauren's book, One and Only, about 10 years ago. And Lauren, I don't know if you know this explicitly, but you get the credit for ending my first engagement. (laughs) What? Wait, you tell me this now? Yes. (laughs) With a live mic, with listeners, now I get the credit for ending your engagement. (laughs) Yeah. So I always wanted one kid and he always was like, that's child abuse. We need to have two kids. And I read your book, One and Only, and I was like, here is a brilliant feminist researcher who can tell you exactly why one child is not child abuse and it's actually fine. And it gave me the courage of my conviction that like only wanting one child was a fair thing to want. And we broke up over it, essentially. So you you are credited with my whole life now. Thank you. It feels like a badge of shame, actually, when you put it that way. But I will take it. I will consider it to be that I was instrumental in your liberation. Should we put it that way? Yes. Yes, I now have these two stepdaughters who are like the loves of my life who I would not have without you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like you, you, that is what you obsess over is women's liberation, right? Like, I know that you've had a lot of different beats over your career, but to me, that seems to be the current phase of your obsession with fighting for women across privileged spectrums. Yeah, it's actually funny to me that One and Only is the book that was liberating for you because, you know, my first book was about the young Christian right with, you know, a bit of my women's lib obsession involved in that, which feels like such a Vanessa book. And then my most recent book, This Is All I Got, is a narrative about a young homeless mother in Brooklyn and her attempts to try to find stability in such a 
racist and inhospitable system, which also feels to me like classic Vanessa territory. So I love that out of my books, it is one and only that got you to end an engagement. To be clear, I love all three of your books, right? Like (laughs) your obsession with religion, right? Like I grew up with Orthodox Jewish women all around me and it drove me absolutely up the wall all the time to see the lives that I could imagine for them. And then again, absolutely, this is all I got is something that I care so passionately about is right, like housing for women and and housing for everybody, of course. But I don't know, it felt like this really intimate way to meet you and become obsessed with you. And so I just want to be honest about the fact (laughs) that this is how we met was about you helping like, you know, an upper middle class white lady like find her own liberation when I know you're fighting for everybody else also. Thank you, my dear. It's funny because when I met you, it was when you invited me to be a guest on Hot and Bothered to talk about evangelical romance novelists. And here I am now co-hosting Hot and Bothered podcast with you, having admitted on this very show that the only romance novels I have ever read are Christian romance novels. So saith the secular atheist feminist Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Jane Eyre is totally a religious romance novel. So that works. I'm glad I'm, I'm like keeping it on trend here. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? This is all I got. I can. It's funny. I feel like it's the book that I became a journalist 20 years ago to write. One of my own obsessions were immersion reporting narratives, like There Are No Children Here by Alex Kotlowitz, and later Mm -hmm. on, Random Family by Adrienne LeBlanc. I mean, there's a long history, although a small one, a limited canon these deeply immersive narratives, books that can read like novels, but in which every word is true, so that we can experience a way of living in America that we never get to otherwise. The book I wrote to really feel like one of those nonfiction novels. It begins with my protagonist, Camilla, who's this extraordinary woman going into labor in her shelter And by the end of the book, she's looking back at that time as the good old days. I did not know when I started telling her story how much worse it could get. Part of why she was such an interesting protagonist to me is she's this really extraordinary woman. She was a criminal justice student. She's gorgeous and poised and has this brilliant lawyer's mind. But of course, you know, was born into poverty, was born into intergenerational poverty that gets worse and worse with every generation uh, in America and in a city like New York, especially. And I wanted to see if she could make it work. I wanted to see if she could make it out of what she would always call the cycle, because there was no one else I had met who seemed as well-equipped. I felt like if she couldn't do it, then I couldn't imagine who could. And so I wanted to find out what would happen. And of course, I completely fell for her along the way. But I I just really wanted to write a book that would shake readers by the lapels and get them to see and feel something that it's really easy to ignore if you have some privilege. I also wanted to write a book that was like a real page turner, you know, that I mean, people are always joking like, oh, yeah, what a beach read. But I actually really did want to see people in bikinis reading this book at the beach (laughs) because I feel like. A book like this feels like a homework assignment, unless it's going to be incredibly compelling. And so I wanted to write something propulsive, which is hard to do when you're writing about poverty, because poverty, for anyone who's experienced it, 
can tell you, is really boring. It's days in waiting rooms. It's days on subway tracks. It's a tremendous amount of loneliness and stagnation. So to figure out how to like get the TikTok in that book so it would move, that was part of what I really endeavored to do. And I, I must say I'm proud of it. And I hope that people will read it and talk about it and convene book clubs and bring it to the beach. I mean, it's exceptional. It really is. I mean, I was go- I was going to ask you a question about the boredom because that is, I would say, one of the things that I took away from the book was how dehumanizing it is to be asked to be so bored all the time, right? Mm-hmm. To sit in a waiting room that, you know, a chair is covered in urine and to have to make these micro decisions about, do I go to the bathroom to clean up and risk losing my place in line and, and have someone like Camilla's brilliance reduced to that. And yet it's such a feat of writing to write about boredom as if it's like a ticking bomb, because what you feel is Camilla's frustration and you watch her. I mean, like mostly you watch her keep her cool and just be able to hold it together and find moments of humanity. And then, of course, have moments of incredible degradation. But how do you write about boredom as if it's like a Hitchcockian bomb in a suitcase. I would say that the flip side to the boredom is that the pressure is constant. Yes. Especially if you're a single mother with a baby like Camilla is in the book. I mean, she's like 15 minutes late to pick up the baby and it costs her $35 at one point. I think that the element of having this baby that needs to be nursed and dropped off and picked up and brought to doctor's appointments and frankly housed and fed, it's constant. And then there are the regulations of the system. If you don't have a job or you can prove that you're in school full time three months after you have that baby, then you don't get your welfare check. And if you don't get back to the shelter by curfew, then you risk eviction. And, you know, all of these different appointments, one after the other, you can never be late for them. And then you wait in a waiting room all day just to be called back again, just to be navigating missing class or being late for work or being late to the daycare. Like that ticking time bomb element is a part of every single second of life. And yet you're sitting in this waiting room. And there is something that feels so dystopian about that. Obviously, the whole system that I describe is incredibly dystopian, and yet it is very much our reality. But there is something about the theater of that, the machine of that, which is forcing people to stay still as their lives are being forced out of control all the time. A tension in there that being by Camilla's side, I experienced it viscerally with her all the time. And so I think that it became internalized for me as well and became a part of that writing. I would just love to hear a little bit about the reporting of this book. What was it like to just literally sit next to someone for over a year and to have your life be determined by them? I would imagine that that is not usually how you live your life. You know, we had a real closeness. And the way that I reported this book was really never to interview her about anything. I probably asked her a handful of direct questions in all of the time that I spent with her because we would just hang. It was just the hang. And the hang would sometimes be in a room at the shelter or on the subway or in a waiting room. But there was always just a hang. And in terms of what it meant to have my life determined by her schedule, yeah, that was 
that was a lot. There was a lot of like, I would get a text at three o'clock in the morning and that would determine where I was going to be at seven. And luckily I had a really supportive partner and a really understanding child, both of whom also became very intimately involved in her life. Right. And, you know, and I think that that was a great thing. That is another boundary that I imagine a lot of people think that I may have crossed. But it's interesting. There was a book by a sociologist in the 60s named Carol Stack called All Our Kin. And she's not a journalist. She's someone who was doing a a sociological study about single motherhood. And her way of immersing herself was to say, "Okay, I'm caring for your baby. You're caring for my baby. Her approach was, if you're going to be intimate with me, I'm going to be intimate with you. And that is often how I approach my own journalism, just like I do the rest of my life. Have you gotten a lot of pushback about boundary crossing and stuff? Because to me, yeah, like I'm a chaplain, right? We spend a lot of time talking about managing boundaries. And anyone who's done this kind of work knows that boundaries are necessarily porous. That sure, in a perfect world, these things are clinical. And yet, if you are, in my case, like meeting someone for chaplaincy in an emergency situation for them while you are simultaneously in an emergency situation, right? Like you're going to Zoom from a weird place and they're going to see your living room, right? Like these boundaries cannot possibly be maintained all the time. And so I'm just curious if this is something that I hate anyone who told you you did it wrong. Who told you you did it wrong? (laughs) Well, I don't know if anyone shamed me that directly. I think that it's for journalism. It's really interesting because I've gotten pushback on both sides. So I've gotten pushback from people who are not journalists, who are furious that I did not pay her rent, that I did not give her a place to live, which, you know, it's interesting. My mother-in-law has spent a lot of time in the social services world. And she pointed out to me, it's funny, we never ask a social worker, why didn't you give this person a home? We never ask a nurse, why didn't you, you know, give your own blood? And yet there's something about journalism that sort of invites, I don't know, an accusation of some complicity in the system that you're trying to expose. But on the other hand, I'm thinking about this conversation I had with Rebecca Skloot, who wrote The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. And she's a friend of mine. And Rebecca and I were sitting, I remember this, like on a couch after I had been agonizing over a scene all day. And in this scene, I mentioned that I had bought Camilla's baby Alonzo a snowsuit because I did not want him freezing to death on my watch. And I remember Rebecca saying, you can't do that. The whole point is to not do that. She said, when when I was, you know, writing Henrietta Lacks, when I was reporting that book, I needed to see how far someone would get to get a car payment. I didn't give them the car payment. And I remember saying, Rebecca, every day of Camilla's life, every second that I spend with her is her trying to get the car payment, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what is that line? And we had this big debate about it. It's a similar debate to one that I've had with journalists before and since about how I report in general and especially how I report this book. And so I own it through the whole book. I flag, you know, when I'm paying for lunch and I flag what I'm participating in that other people might not be. And I also talk about my sleepless nights, about what does it mean to not ask her to move into my house? And where's the hypocrisy in that? And was it truly that I was 
needing to see what would play out for her and therefore not interrupt that narrative because that's the purpose for that boundary? Or was it really that I couldn't deal with the stress of her and her baby moving into my apartment in Brooklyn? And I wrestle with that a lot. And I think it's both. It's not as simple as me being able to hide behind a professional curtain there and say, oh, no, no, I can't. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That honesty that you just like demonstrated there and the exposure of your own hypocrisy, but really everyone's hypocrisy and like functioning in this world is part of the brilliance of this book is that it just doesn't turn away from any of the nuance or the like friction of your relationship with her or of anything that she is going through. Lauren, something else that I'm curious about is I feel like the thesis of the book is in this quote from your book. If Camilla couldn't use her wits and persistence to make the system work for her, no one could. And I feel like that is right. Like that's the thesis of the book is like, let's see, the system is supposed to work. You're supposed to be able to walk through it and come out having achieved the American dream. You're supposed to start in poverty and walk out and have a kid who's been fed while you go to community college and work your way up through college and get a job and an apartment and get married and have babies and everyone is happy. And so like, let's let's give the system its best possible chance of succeeding, we are going to give it this exceptional young woman with a mind like a knife and let's see what she does. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering your choice of that, right? Because it's taking an exceptional person. She is brighter and has more persistence than I do by a long shot. And that becomes very clear very quickly. So I'm wondering your choice rather than choosing someone more maybe like prototypical, versus choosing Camilla? Well, I think that there are two ways to answer this question. One way is that I think that there's a different book that I would have written and perhaps imagined writing about someone who was more demographically aligned with a more common experience of homelessness, someone who is African-American instead of Latina, someone who has debilitating mental health issues instead of someone who is really effective on a day-to-day basis, someone who may have a history of drug use in their family. I mean, there are all of these different elements that would have given us a more 
representative story about how incredibly inhumane our tax-funded system is. This system that only exists to help people, and in fact, I believe, hurts people radically, the way that it is structured. So that book is a book that I would have written, I think, if there had been someone who was so demographically representative who had chosen me. So I started reporting in this shelter and there were a number of women who, for very good reason, did not want to participate in the experiment of this book. There were a number of women who did want to participate, but who didn't have the hunger for my presence that Camilla did. And it was Camilla's hunger for my presence that allowed me to write the book that I was able to write. One that, that can be so closely observed on a minute to minute basis, one that can delve so fully into her trauma, her past, her desires. It was her lack of boundaries with me that allowed me to write a book like this. And so on the one hand that offered up, I thought a, a really effective experiment, if not her, then who can make it in this system? But that's all hindsight really, because she mm -hmm. just was the one She's the one I was hanging with mm -hmm. more than anyone. And it's interesting. The book was originally something that I was going to fully focus at the shelter. My, my initial editor who acquired it edited Orange is the New Black. And that notion of sort of an ensemble story in a very specific place was one that really appealed to her and to me as well. But here's a little bit of a spoiler. At a certain point, Camilla gets kicked out of the shelter. And at that moment, I had to decide, is this book about her within an ensemble or is this book going to follow her as an individual? Because she was either going to leave and I would stay in the shelter or I would have to follow her to her overcrowded apartment in the Bronx and so on and so on. And she was just too compelling not not to stay with in that way. But that that changed the shape of the book and what sort of story I could tell. So Lauren, I met you and heard about your book from you before I read it. It wasn't out yet. And you told me that you sort of had a vision of almost making it Mrs. Dalloway, that instead of one day, you wanted it to be one year. And I was so excited. And you, you sent me an advanced copy and I read it and I was like, oh my God, it is. It's Mrs. Dalloway. But now in this conversation with you, I'm like, no, it's Jane Eyre. It is you following, not that it can't be both, but it is, it is you following a young woman who is kicked out of her childhood home too young, right? Camilla, if I remember correctly, is kicked out of her mother's house at 15, Jane obviously at 10, and then is like sent out into systems that keep disappointing her. And like, she keeps trying to find a way to survive. So I'm wondering if that comparison resonates with you or you're like, no, no, Camilla's not Jane Eyre. Stop it. Jane Eyre's a white lady in England. Different. So I, um, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this on the podcast, but I have, I have read Jane Eyre now five times during five very different eras of my life. And I hadn't read Jane Eyre as I was reporting this book or writing it until I began reading it very recently to think about it for this podcast. And I was knocked out by how uncanny the parallels are. When I was thinking about Mrs. Dalloway, it was sort of a formal structure. Right. I mean, obviously, it's not like Camilla said she would get the flowers herself. 
But the Jane Eyre comparison is it's really uncanny to me in terms of a number of things, in terms of a sort of an orphan's life, in terms of what it means to have so much fire and intelligence to rage against the system, what it means to be so utterly trapped in such an oppressive society and such oppressive circumstances, what it means to yearn and love and desire. I mean, it's interesting when we've talked about Jane Eyre, we we keep coming back to these questions of power and desire. And I feel like this is all I got similarly as a book in which the central questions are about power and desire and who even has the power to desire. One of the things that I think about a lot and I wrote about in the book is how, you know, Camilla's 22 and we meet her, I think. We all have had our experiences of being 22 or we'll soon have them if we're not that old yet that, you know, we imagine a certain degree of risk taking and passion and experimentation with a with a reasonable margin of error. And one of the things that I I think about a lot when it comes to Camilla and people like Camilla is what it means to live with no margin of error. And therefore not be entitled to that sort of passion, that sort of experimentation that most people deem just an ordinary part of being a person in your late teens or your early 20s. That's the time in your life when you are supposed to go forth and take risks and feel and want And she has all of that in her, of course. And it's one of the reasons I was so magnetized to her is because she is someone with so much desire and so much energy. And there's a lot of Jane in there, what it means to really love, to want to connect, to want to feel deep sisterhood, to want to experience the world, to want to push back and what it means to be trapped, what it means to be silenced, what it means to be unsafe are all things that Jane comes up against very much the way that Camilla does. Yeah, they're, they're very similar people to me. Like, it's just so not why we asked you to be on the podcast, right? It's not, it had nothing to do with it. And yet it is just the most striking thing. And I feel like it is one of the gifts that you will bring to the podcast is, right? Like Jane Eyre might feel antiquated in a lot of ways, and it is antiquated in a lot of ways. And yet actually society has just gotten worse in so many ways for people on the margins and systems there, right? Like we know what we can do to fix it in ways the society just so deeply do not want to. And it's been 200 years and it's not better. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to think that Bronte would read This Is All I Got and recognize it, see it, feel it and be furious. Yeah, I mean, Jane Eyre, right? Like could be called This Is All I Got, right? Like it, she is like, this is everything that I can do. Even with Jane, it almost kills her. It almost kills her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I morally implore you, but that makes it sound like a homework assignment. Everybody, go put on a bikini <laughs> and read this book. It's summertime. This is like a complete page turner. It is also a love story between you, the reader, and Camilla. Like you are just going to fall completely in love with this woman. So like go put on a bikini, buy this in paperback, read it at the beach, send us photos. And we can't wait to post them. And Lauren, I can't wait for all of our listeners to get to know you the way that I have. Even I like I hope you cause some breakups. (laughs) 
people are going to hear you and be like, "Ugh, I deserve more. I'm going to set everyone's life on fire. That is my goal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Been doing it since before you met me. And everybody starting July 2nd, more conversations like this on air, which Lauren named right here in the Hot and Bothered feed. I can't wait. Me too. This episode of Hot and Bothered was executive produced by Ariana Nettleman and edited by AJ Yarmez. We want to give a special thanks this week, of course, to Lauren Sandler and to all of our patrons. I'm Vanessa Sultan, and we'll talk to you soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.